Hi everyone and welcome to the Panama Podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. And I'm delighted to welcome a, uh, a new guest to the show today. Uh, and it's again, it's somebody I've wanted to have on the show for quite a while. It seems to be the way with uh, with new guests. Um, but um, yeah, author uh, D.L. Mayfield, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's really great to have you here. Uh, and... Uh, Yes, um, she's just written. A, you've just written a book called *The Myth of the American Dream: um, Reflections on Affluence, Autonomy, Safety, and Power*, which we're going to talk about a bit later. But, um, but yeah, so um, yeah, it's great to have you on the show. So, um, so tell us a bit about tell us a bit about your story and the story behind this book as well. Yeah, it's a it's a long story, but. Uh, basically, I just grew up kind of within the belly of American conservative Christianity, and I really wanted to be a missionary, and I ended up working with refugees um, who had been resettled in my city of Portland, which is in Oregon on the West Coast, and it really changed my life. I was able to see, you know, how good was my city actually for people who weren't just like me, you know? Yeah. Um, and also, uh, same thing with, with my religion. Was Christianity only good news? Was my version of Christianity only good news for people who looked, believed, talked, thought, and learned just like me? And and so that all happened when I was, you know, 19, 20, to my mid-20s. It started me on a... A faith shift and, and a journey, and then this second book. So I wrote about that in my first book called "Assimilate or Go Home: Notes from a Failed Missionary on Rediscovering Faith." And then this second book is more coming out of you know over a decade now, almost fifteen years of living and working in you know low-income refugee and immigrant neighborhoods in the United States, and some reflections on some of these values that I've been told to pursue by my I would say by my culture and my country, the dominant culture values, but uh, also within uh, dominant culture Christianity as well, and, and these values of, you know, affluence and autonomy, safety and power, how strong they are in my life, and how I think, you know, they're actually opposed to what Jesus told us to value and pursue as we try to be more like Christ. So, uh, yeah, this is something I've been wrestling and thinking about for a long time, and I decided to put some of those thoughts down in a book. Yeah, and it's a really, really good book. Um, really powerful. And it's kind of part memoir, really, and part reflection. Uh, and it's it's kind of like a, a bunch of essays kind of ordered uh, into different groups around different topics around you know the idea of empire and I mean one of the things that I've noticed in the last few years is how is there's a similarity between you know the empire that Jesus talks about and, and experienced in scripture and then you know America kind of um, you know America seems like the empire and mm. um, the American dream is kind of like yeah, I mean, what is the myth of the American dream? Yeah, I, I think that I'd love to get your feedback on this. You know, as, as someone who, you know, is not living in America, I I really think the myth of the American dream, I mean, it's quite complex, right? Mm. 
Mm-hmm. But I'm coming at it from this perspective of being someone who is white and Christian and how deeply tied together that is with this idea that anybody can make it if they try hard enough in the United States, when that's simply not true. And historically, you know, only a few privileged sorts of people have been able to access the resources and and this trajectory, right, of the American dream. And so really looking at why is this narrative so important. I was actually homeschooled and was raised on Christian uh, textbooks, including history textbooks, and they all, you know, really explicitly stated that God uh, purposely had North America be hidden uh, until, you know, the Europeans, the European Protestants, definitely not the Catholics, uh, could come and, and take it over and really wow. utilized it to its full extent, which really is actually talking about exploiting and, um, you know, colonizing and all of that. So really, I think many, many nations, you know, probably have this idea that they're the best and you can really get a lot done there. And, you know, all these normal sort of like nationalistic, nationalistic ideas. But where America, I think, is unique is this idea that from the beginning, it's been tied up with the sort of Protestant experiment. And that's been so tied together with race and uh, who we believe God has designed to be in charge of America. So it's it's pretty insidious, actually. And, and the thing that I write about is if your life is pretty good in America, right, if the system has worked for you, then you are going to believe in the myth of the American dream, right? You're going to say, hey, I worked hard. I earned all this, and it's pretty great. So yeah. it, it must be a working system. And you feel good about yourself, and then you're able to sort of um, discredit the suffering of people who don't make it. And you can say, oh, it's not a system problem. You just must be lazy, or you just must not work hard enough, or you must come from a culture that's not as good as ours. And it's really, really, really problematic. Yeah, it is. And I know that my country is partly responsible for this, given whether, you know, <laughs> we colonialized everywhere. We had the British Empire. We. You know, we um, kind of colonised America and imposed our system there. And, you know, that I mean, that system that you took about is is still alive and well in a a way here, although we're a more secular culture now. Mm -hmm. But there's still roots of that system. I mean, today, a member of the British government, um, who are almost as bad as the American government, um, made basically blamed blamed black people for the rising covid in, in certain communities i mean literally said it publicly on radio and yeah. it was just horrific you know um this systemic racism that's still there in this country it's, i mean it's, it's the same and so what, what happened what's happening in america is yeah um it's kind of familiar we've got a lot of similar things happen, happening here in the uk Wow, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And yeah. I, I really been thinking recently, like, I think I could handle the pro-Trump stuff. I think I could handle some of this stuff a little bit better if the loudest supporters in the United States weren't Christians. You know, like, that just keeps getting shoved in my face over and over again. I, is it the same for you in the U.K.? Are Christians, like, at the forefront of some of these, you know, anti-immigrant 
racist policies, or is it more secularized? It's more secularized. I mean, we do have the Church of England, which is... Um, it's not really... But it has no influence on politics, really. Um, mm. In fact, often they speak up against the government. Uh, so... And they have done. So it's not nearly the same. And most people here are not Christian. Um, I think 1% of the population are Christian, are regular churchgoers. So uh, it's very different in terms of culture, but in terms of, I mean, there's this imperialistic attitude, you know, um, of we're Britain, we're better than everybody else. Um, We won the war. Um, um, We don't have to follow the rules. Um, There's kind of empire-like attitude mm. uh, and it's, it is the kind of the roots of Brexit really is, is this this yeah. whole is this whole idea of we don't need anybody else we're better than everybody else uh, and uh, you know some people even saying oh Germany are, are the powerful nation in the EU and they're plotting to take over Europe and we need to be free of like it's the 1930s or something you know mm. um, it's just this kind of and people actually believe this and yeah I, good people believe it as well and I, I just it, I, I'm still trying to figure out how that happens <laughs> but it's but yeah it's it's so deep rooted uh, and it's kind of and again we're edu- we were educated to believe certain things like like the people that the people that um, you know conquered the world you know the, the brave sailors you know that um, kind of spread the empire we, we we were brought up to see them as heroes, yeah. you know, and they weren't. <laughs> it's, it's as simple as that. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's incredible, really. Yeah. Um, so I think there's, there's some similarities, certainly. Um, and one of the things I noticed about your book is as well how you talk about going back to the roots of what Jesus was all about and what he was here for and some of some of the those kind of core sayings of Jesus so, I mean tell us tell us about kind of your journey into discovering your faith journey as you kind of learn more about what you talk about in the book yeah I think being raised uh, you know very Christian my dad was a pastor like I mentioned I was homeschooled on Christian curriculum I ended up going to Bible college to get my degree, and so I'm somebody who's been really immersed in the Bible, but it's a pretty, like, uh, it was just approach to it, so like a highly literal uh, and, and yet selective reading of the scriptures, and so I think I'm now still on that journey of saying, like, how can I deconstruct some of these, like, individualistic ways I've, I've read the scriptures, and um, how can I sort of change my focus in some ways? And I'm actually really starting to find a lot of joy in uh, approaching the scriptures in, in fresh ways. And it's also just a really beautiful experience to uh, be changed by other people's way of interacting with scripture. When maybe when I was a kid, you know, that would be seen as really dangerous, <laughs> you know, like, uh, to, to, like, I remember even at my Bible college, like liberation theology or like learning theology for people in the global south was like a big no-no because, you know they are all too political and now I'm just like oh my gosh it is so encouraging to read theology from different perspectives and and I truly mean that and so I I think I'm trying to be on this journey of I've deconstructed some stuff 
there was definitely some toxic stuff about how I approached the Bible. And now uh, there's just some parts that blow me away with their beauty. And it always comes back to Jesus. Like even today, you know, I live in Portland, Oregon, and it's sort of making global headlines for what's going on with the federal police occupying our downtown Mm. and tear-gassing protesters who are protesting police brutality against uh, the black community specifically. And, you know, I've been down there. I've been tear-gassed a few times. It's wild. and And yet there's still so much work to be done. There's a lot of ways different protesters want to do things. There's a lot of clashes, lots of fighting, all this drama. And I woke up this morning being like, I I wish there was like one perfect thing to do right now, but there isn't. And I was just reminded like my whole life I'm searching for someone who is truly good and truly just. And that person is Jesus. There's, there's literally no one else that I can look to to be a perfect person. Um, and I was just reminded again, like, you have to go back to Jesus. It's, it's truly the only person who has lived with God's kingdom fully realized, uh, you know, in their person and in how they approach life. And so I just want to continue to immerse myself in studying Jesus. It's been so exciting to um, really center Jesus in the context he was born into, the political ramifications, the power structures. Uh, you know, he operated in and um, seeing how Jesus always uplifted the marginalized, right? It just totally changes how we view the world. Jesus said, blessed are, you know, the poor, the sick, the sad. And he really meant it. Like, they're actually somehow really blessed in God's economy, in God's kingdom. And yet my church had told me, you know, People who are poor are probably lazy or probably sinned in some way, you know? Like, yeah, that's, yeah. Not, that's not what Jesus said at all. And so how do we start to really take him seriously and view these community, communities who've been marginalized? How do we view them as communities who actually have some blessings to give us? And, and that's just how I kind of want to frame the rest of my life. That's right, yeah. It's... <laughs> This is why I'm so passionate about hearing people's stories. Because when you hear someone's story, it takes on a whole new dimension. You mm-hmm. understand what's really going on. And it's not as simple as it's not as simple as oh they're they're poor so they're lazy. It's never mm. that simple. Um, and yeah, there's just so many myths. I mean, it's funny you use the title The Myth of the American Dream. I think there's so many myths that kind of go under that umbrella. You know, and one of them is that you're poor because somehow it's your fault. And, yeah, that's, yeah. And I agree, on Jesus, like I said before on the show, like, the more I've deconstructed and the more I've left religion, toxic religion and institutions, religious institutions behind, the more I've connected with Jesus and the more I love Jesus. And the more I see what he was doing. Um, has that been your experience as well? It has. And, and, and one thing I will say, as someone who was raised in Christianity, and I really wanted to be a good Christian, you know, I was taught, like, you just say you love Jesus all the time. And I, I didn't truly understand what that meant. And, like, I was just sharing, it's like now, it's like the only place my 
soul can find rest. And, and as I've been in relationship and lived in neighborhoods where, you know, again, refugees, right, are people who've experienced the worst the world has to offer, right? And so they've, they've lived through hell, they're resilient, they're amazing, and yet still there's so many challenges uh, that they face to flourishing in my own city of Portland, Oregon. And just my heart feels broken, you know, like every day because of inequality and injustice and, and what it's done in our world. And yet when I take a step back, I'm like, I'm, I'm only sad and heartbroken because I have a dream that another world is possible. You know, this is a language that some people use. And, and theologian Lisa Sharon Harper was the one who really spelled it out for me that the, the scriptures talk about this word shalom, you know, over 500 times. Hmm. And shalom is God's dream for the world. It's true flourishing. And the way we can tell if a community is flourishing is if its most marginalized people are flourishing. And, and that's the scriptural definition, right, of a community that is operating in full health. It's the poor, the sick, the sad, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan. They're all doing great. And when they're doing great, everybody's going to do great. And it's been really helpful for me to be like, I'm just, I'm not just somebody who you know, wants to fix the world really quickly, wants everything to be good. I actually have an innate desire that I think comes from a loving creator, God, to see flourishing in my city, you know? And yeah. I'm not the only one who has it. I think God's given it to all of us, and, and we have to cultivate that desire for shalom more and more and more, um, you know, and really fan those, those flames of it. And it's been really helpful to just even combat my own sort of like savior complex tendencies and all that to say, you know what? I'm just one tiny person who has the same dream, the same dream for God's vision, you know, of the world. And it's been really cool to just think of myself as I'm just a tiny person partnering with people all over the world, you know, all throughout the centuries who've had the same dream. And I love that. It turned it into more of a collectivist communal and, and I would say more biblical approach to why do we do the things that we do and why do we care? Because God told us to love shalom, you know, and that's what we want to work towards. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. People keep talking about, you know, I've read a lot of people saying, oh, capitalism hasn't, hasn't worked and, and, you know, socialism doesn't work either and communism doesn't work and we need some kind of third way. Um... And I just keep thinking, like, yeah, we we kind of have a third way already. Um, it's there. We we just haven't understood it, kind of thing, you know. Jesus is Jesus's example. You know that is, is that third yeah. way. You know, um, instead of kind of fundamentalism, you know, whether it's conservative or progressive fundamentalism, how about we find something that's neither of them and is actually really inclusive and just and loving um and non-violent you know yeah and and the the thing is it's so hard for me right i've been raised in this capitalistic society where things have gone pretty well for me and so in order to envision this third way or this new way forward right the only people who can help lead us in that are people who've been crushed by capitalism right or or people right who've even experienced uh you know all forms of government that have ultimately been oppressive and so we just we have to center those stories and, and trust that people who have been oppressed are the ones that are gonna are lead us forward and I, I find that exciting not terrifying personally yeah i find that exciting as well i 
Yeah, having, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, we're going through a collective grief right now. And I think we were going through a collective grieving before even the pandemic, to be honest. Mm. I think the pandemic has amplified that. Um, But having been through a kind of grief, trauma, recovery process in the last five years and a kind of life deconstruction, what I see as the pattern is that when things tend to get a lot worse... And then things, then things do get better after that. Mm. When you get to your lowest point, then things start to get better. And you actually start to see transformation. And I, and I can kind of see that. I get glimmers of hope sometimes that I, that in the world that I see that that is kind of happening. That, yeah, okay, things are getting a lot worse. But that's because they'll probably get better after that. You know, maybe mm. they need to get worse so they can get better. Uh, maybe that'll be the transformation that we need. Mm. I hope that's true. <laughs> yeah, so do I. <laughs> yeah, I really do hope that's true. Um, yeah, um, I think we all do. Yeah. Um, yeah, so then there's four different, in the book, there's four different areas that you cover. Um, so tell us a bit about those different different areas that you cover that we where we need to kind of rethink how we do things. The four sections are affluence, you know, autonomy, safety, and power. And it sort of came from me playing around with the passage in Luke 4 where Jesus, you know, announces his ministry and what he came to do on the earth uh, through reading, um, you know, from the scroll of Isaiah and saying the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, um, to set at liberty the captives, restore sight to the blind, and set the oppressed free. And and it's just such a beautiful passage, especially after I had known, you know, refugees and, and other people for a while. I just thought, this Jesus is good news to my neighbors and my friends, right? And made me, again, love Jesus all the more, but then sort of playing around with, okay, well, what are the opposite of those places that Jesus said he was going to be? You know, what's the opposite of the poor? It's the rich. You know, what's the opposite of people who have been captives? people who are free and you know I kind of played around with these ideas and just started thinking about how strong some of those opposite values are uh, for me and so I start off talking about affluence because for me it was a a great way to sort of introduce this idea that we're not here to talk about individuals but we're here to talk about systems right and wealth distribution and how unequal it is in the United States you know is what we need to be talking about we need to be talking about capitalism and how it has harmed so many people instead of, you know, judging someone who doesn't make very much money, you know, buying a fancy coffee or something like that, you know? Um, And so for me, it's just a really challenging place to start to say, what is it that I feel like I need to be safe? Or even, you know, going back to some prosperity gospel stuff is, do I feel like if I'm doing well financially or if I'm more successful that God is more pleased with me? Because there still is this really deep narrative that um, if you're doing well, God's going to bless you, right? And, mm-hmm. and I think that's really not true when we look at the scripture. <laughs> yeah. And yet we so badly want it to be true. And I, and I mm-hmm. kind of wanted to dig into that a little bit more. Um, I don't know. Do you want me to keep going or do you want to chat keep, about no. your section? I'll keep going, but I, yeah, I'd like to chat about, chat about each section, but keep going, honestly. <laughs> I don't yeah, want to stop okay. your flow. The, the, sec- the second section is about autonomy, and this is 
sort of this idea that I'm free to do whatever I want, I'm constrained by other people, and it's such a huge deal to Americans. And I, I'm not sure how this section kind of uh, came across to you as someone in the UK, but um, ever since, you know, I wrote this book long before COVID-19 happened, but it's just been excruciating to watch this American value of individualism just absolutely decimate any sort of global or like a community health response. And so it's just so depressing, James. Like people are so obsessed with their individual right to not wear a mask that we will not get a handle on this pandemic. We we just simply won't. Yeah. I actually tweeted about this yesterday that there's this movement in England. I forget what it's called now. Some it's like free Britain or something like that, but oh my God. which is literally there's this whole it's a Twitter account with loads of followers. There's people making videos talking about how our how British freedom is being inhibited by the government telling us to wear masks and enforcing that with fines and things like that. That's somehow inhibiting our freedom, and it's like I'm just like I, I just can't get my head around it. Like it's a mask. It's a face mask, like, and you don't have to wear it at home, you know, you have to wear it when you go out, that's all, it's not that big of a problem, and it keeps other people safe, like, is it really, how is that impinging on your freedom? It's just, it's just, I just, I almost kind of despair of, of, of some people, because it's just, I just don't get where this thing comes from, like, yeah, I, I agree with individual autonomy in a sense, and individual freedom, but it's not losing your freedom to have to put a mask on to to keep other people safe from getting ill um, or even keep yourself from getting ill as well. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's what I was trying to say in these essays. It's like, it's not that any of these values are inherently wrong or bad. I think you're right. It's my friends from other countries, right? They would like the, the freedom to practice their religion and to, you know, raise their kids and all this stuff. So, Freedom and autonomy isn't a bad thing, but when people of privilege continually insist on that right for themselves, you know, the common good is always harmed. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this pandemic is a perfect example of that, right? Yeah. Uh, People just obsessing about their individual right to do whatever they want is actually physically killing people. Our school system is totally shut down. I mean, I have two school-age kids. They haven't been in school for six months, and there's probably not going to be any in-person school for the next year, at least. I mean, this is so disastrous, and if everybody would wear a mask, it could be over like that. But it won't yeah. happen because of how deep-rooted this ideology of I get to do what's right for myself, and I don't have to care about my neighbor. And that's truly what it comes down to. And I'm trying to say, with the myth of the American dream, you know, these things might not seem that harmful, but if you start going underneath the surface, the ideology that props it up, it's absolutely devastating. And I think between COVID-19 and all of this stuff going on in the U.S. in regards to police brutality against black people, uh, it's all coming up to the surface. It's, it's all being revealed to be how deadly it truly is. Yeah, absolutely it is. And, yeah... <laughs> It's um, it's uncanny the similarities actually between America and the UK. I mean, yeah, I mean, because people aren't wearing masks now, you we're kind of on the verge of a second wave, because you know our government didn't go into lockdown soon enough, 
and didn't enforce things strongly enough um, and didn't sack a member of their own government for not keeping the rules uh, then people are just flattening the rules and we've got a second wave and all for the sake of freedom apparently you know and yeah it's just yeah and, and for, for someone like me I, I really have to learn how do I build up these muscles to think about the common good instead of just myself and what's sad is that uh, the church the Christian church should have been the place for me to build up those muscles but it hasn't been and so the last two sections of the book one is on this uh, you know value of safety and that's sort of focused in, uh, and it's funny, it's not about, like, pandemics and stuff like that, but <laughs> it, is, it is about keeping, like, your own little nuclear family safe is, is a huge value here in the U.S. Um, and so I, I use a lot of examples like um, school choice, like where you choose to send your kids, you know, to keep them safe. And then I also really focus on the issue of refugees and immigration and how our politicians really use this language of you won't be safe if, if we let people in and and how we love to scapegoat people who are different from us. And then the last section is about power, and that's probably the most personally heartbreaking section for me, which is this this value of power really has warped uh, American white evangelical Christianity to the point where it's, it's basically lost its witness, um, in, I would say even globally, right? We, we can all see the resonance of that and just, how pursuing political power and um, political power specifically for us as Christians, as white Christians, ha- has led us to just absolutely forsake this idea of prioritizing and privileging our neighbors who are suffering. Um, and it's just devastating. And I just don't know if I'll ever get over it, to be perfectly honest. And so <laughs> yeah. I guess that's part of why I wrote this. Yeah, and that's that's it. It's yeah power is seductive power is mm-hmm. addictive um no matter what your intentions are honestly you know good people can be seduced by power if they get too close to it you know it's yeah and actually what yeah. jesus talked about is giving away power is surrender you know he i mean like example like you know, if you believe the Jesus story, you believe that Jesus actually gave up his divinity to become human, and that's the ultimate giving up of power. Um, and he, yeah, um, and surrendered his life in a way like he didn't didn't resist when they tried to when they tried to kill him. He just let them do it. He let the empire kill him, um, and yet somehow, especially American Christians. Uh, seem to be like, completely opposite. Uh, like, we want as much power as we can get, so we can because we can tr- we can control everybody, you know. And you have you know power structures at evangelical churches, which are all about centralizing power. Uh, and yeah, it's quite concerning. Yeah. Yeah, and you're and you're right that most people probably have pretty good intentions, right? They hmm. they say, I want power to do good. And, and even in the United States, you know, there's really been the, the issue of abortion that's been put forth, right? Like, if you vote for Republicans, then they'll reduce abortions. And so people are like, yes, of course I want to reduce abortions. I, I will vote for certain people in power. And it's just really depressing to see how even some good desires have been used, right, to just consolidate power. And I think you're right. One thing that's really 
it's not a hard thing to do. It just takes a little bit of like tweaking is to go back and read the gospels and look at Jesus's interactions with people. Hmm. And if you could sort of, you know, ascertain, and, and I think the, the gospel narratives actually really help with this. When Jesus is talking with people, you know, is he talking to someone who's powerful or someone who doesn't have power in that society? And then look at how Jesus responds to them according to how much power they have. And does Jesus give them power in that interaction? Is he asking them to possibly give up their power? And it's really, really life-changing, right? And then it'll invite you as a reader of Scripture to kind of look at your own situation and say, am I someone who right now in this cultural moment where I'm at, do I have power? Do I not? And it's all a continuum. You know, like, yes, I'm a woman, so, you know, maybe I get discriminated against a little bit, but I'm also white, middle class, Christian. You know, I'm dominant culture in most forms, so I've, I've had to become much more comfortable with, uh, owning the fact that I have a lot of power, and therefore, what would my interactions with Jesus be like? And it, it actually kind of freaks me out. Uh, you know, I'm most similar to a very religious uh, leader, you know, in the Gospels. That's who I'm most similar to, because I spent my whole life trying to earn God's approval by doing all the right things. And so, yes, it can be threatening to hear that actually God's working in all these other places, <laughs> you know, that I've dismissed and discredited. So... I just think that's a great little thing if people want to read the scriptures and, and look at Jesus to sort of read it with this power framework in mind, which if you come from a place of power, you probably never did that. If you grew up without power, you probably already were doing that all along. Mm. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's challenging. I was just thinking of the story of the rich man, uh, Jesus and the rich man who said, you know, I've done all these I've done all the right things, I've always obeyed the rules, I've given money away to the poor, I've done done everything right as I should do. And he says, yeah, one thing you lack, you know, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and follow mm-hmm. me. And I think I used to, I think I certainly used to read that and I think a lot of people read that as, oh, that's not me, that's like a millionaire or something or, you know, or Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or something. But mm-hmm. actually, when you're, if you're white, uh, you know, middle class, that's you, really. You know, because <laughs> um, yeah, we're privileged and we have more resources and the system is built in our favour. And, yeah, and that's discomforting, but it's but it's true. Yeah, it's just so funny looking at, uh, you know, my background and just saying we, lo- we love to be biblical literalists about so many things, but not about money and what you had to say about money. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we weren't very literalist about that and uh, trying to reclaim a little bit of that but it's so challenging it's so challenging and um, I'm up for I'm up for being challenged the rest of my life by Jesus so I, I want to be yeah same absolutely and you know I keep reading different things that Jesus said and I'm feeling more challenged by them than ever um, loving your enemies I mean mm. that is that's huge and yeah we don't haven't even begun to explore that it's um it's so inconvenient i don't want to <laughs> yeah I, I don't want to love the person that hurt me or offended me or upset me or did something awful to me <laughs> yeah he says do good to those who hate you like i mean it's like do you really understand what that means you know <laughs> it's, it's 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 uncomfortable um mm-hmm. but it's meant to be it always was that's why it's called the narrow path i think mm. So, so what are your biggest hopes for this for this book, and that for people to get out of it? And 
Yeah. Yeah, I think I just wanted to advise people who maybe are unsatisfied or uncomfortable with sort of the dominant culture narratives around Christianity and the United States was kind of my primary focus. And I, I'm a huge reader. I love reading books and I love the sort of solidarity I, I can experience when reading. So I, I guess I just wrote it to be like, if other people are having some of these thoughts, you know, I'm, I'm having some of them too. And really as a writer, my goal was to, connect with people and to also try and unsettle them a little bit because that's been really important to my own narrative of continual conversion, right? Is connecting with people and then allowing yourself to be unsettled um, by these questions that Jesus was always asking, which is, do you see your neighbor? And how can you be a part of being responsible to love them? You know, so I just want to keep doing that. I did not... In some ways, I'm like, oh, my book seems pretty superfluous now because within the space of a few months, I'm like, the the myth of American exceptionalism seems to have been blown out of the water, right? And so I'm like, hopefully nobody even needs to read it. We all get it. We all want to move on, and we want to work towards God's kingdom, um, you know, in our cities as it is in heaven. But uh, something tells me there's, there's still there's still some remnants of American Christianity that are just so deeply entrenched with upholding the project of white supremacy in America. And um, since that's my community, I'm going to keep doing what I can to uh, keep talking to my community, but I'm slowly getting kicked out. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure how much more people will be listening to me. (laughs) Well, it's an amazing book. It really is. Um, I think it's, it's so true for our times. Um, it's kind of a... Well, it would have been a prophetic voice for our times if we hadn't had the pandemic, I think. Um, but if you, if you get what I mean, the kind of... The pandemic seems to have amplified everything up and exposed everything. And people are starting to see it, like you say. Um, yeah, and I just love... I love these discussions of even how it's different in other places. I actually wrote one essay, the last essay I wrote for my book... I wrote it after visiting England last summer and going to uh, Cambridge and just being really struck by the history of Christianity in England and then where it's at, like you said, you know, less than 1% of the population. And uh, I think there's some things America can learn from England. Uh, I'm not sure that we're listening, though. (laughs) Yeah, I think there are some things that America can learn from England. uh, And... Yeah, I mean, we still have some of the same systematic problems, I would say. Mm-hmm. Some of the same kind of imperialistic attitudes. Um, but at the same time, I think we're not an inherently religious culture anymore. And that's, that's a good yeah, thing. Yeah, you, lo- you lost the battle a long time ago, actually, um, with cultural Christianity. And therefore, you know, the Christians I met when I was in England, I'm like, they are they're my people. They're trying to be disciples of Christ in, in every aspect of their life, you know, and I, I think that was kind of encouraging for me. But they are the extreme minority, and that's something America is terrified of. Yeah, yeah, that's right, and yeah, I'm just hoping for that, that in the next, when we have our next election in four years that we uh, finally get rid of this um, you know, buffoon and this, this right-wing government we have. Um 
you can get rid of yours in November, hopefully. Hopefully, if the, ele- if the election happens then. Um, <laughs> um, I wasn't even surprised when I heard the news that he wanted to postpone it. Um, but, yeah, and... Yeah, and I hope that... I have hope that that, that change will come in time. Um, yeah, but... Um, yeah, it's a fantastic book, The Myth of the American Dream. I'd recommend it to everybody. You can get it wherever books are. Um, and how can people connect with you and follow you and find your work? Yeah, I'm, I'm quite active on social media usually. I'm on Twitter at D.O. Mayfield. I have a website, D.O. Mayfield. And um, my husband and I do have a little podcast where we kind of talk through issues of American evangelicalism and, and pop culture that we were raised with and sort of a little bit more fun way of uh, deconstructing some stuff. And we're going to actually be talking to you all about the Chronicles of Narnia this fall. Oh, so exciting. There's a little Love that. Uh, British connection there. It's a really yeah. discussion to be had. Um, and that's called the Prophetic Imagination Station. And you can find that where you get your podcast. Awesome. That is awesome. Um, well, thank you for coming on. Really appreciate it. It's been a really great conversation. Um, yeah. Um, really thank you so much. This is my first interview about this book with someone um, from the UK, so that's great. Oh, awesome. Fantastic. Well, I hope we'll have you back sometime as well on the show. Um, yeah. So thanks for listening, everybody. Um, take care, and we'll talk again soon.